Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 2014, and if it's in your ears and not in a book, you can't escape a podcast on the... Baba Duck 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 Hey, everybody. Welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, And this is the podcast where we are trying to find the best movies of all time. And once we do, we will launch them into space. Seriously, Amy, we're launching these into space. Am I right? Absolutely. Space, can you handle the Babadook? And to make sure that we are finding the best movies, we're trying to break down uh, types of movies, genres. Uh, right now, we're in the middle of our horror genre. We talked about Frankenstein last week, which has been acknowledged widely as one of the first big horror films. And now we're going to be pushing it up, going all the way to 2014 to talk about The Babadook, which is a movie that I really, really love so much so that, Amy, I invested in a very special, like, GoFundMe Etsy project that recreated the Babadook book. Uh, oh, and yes. now you're haunted. June will not let it in the house. June, my wife, will not let that book in the house. She Wait, is where is it fr- then? It's is it in, in the garage. <laughs> no, it's in the garage. It is in the garage, uh, which kind of in the in the theme of the Babadook is, for all intents and purposes, our basement. So I don't know if it's out of the house entirely. So maybe we are haunted by... Uh, the Babadook. Is there a door from the garage to the house? No. Thankfully, no. <laughs> <All right. laughs> then I think you're safe. I think you're safe. However, every time you drive, I would look out. You know, I want to mention that last week we went on Twitch, Amy and I, and we talked to everybody about our last miniseries. And you can actually check that out on Twitch. You can go to my website, paulshear.com, and you can see the link to the Twitch page, or you can just go to twitch.tv uh, slash paulshear, and you can see Amy and I as we go through uh, all of the films that we talked about in our back to school section and really focused on listener comments. And that was actually so much fun. I think I'd like to get back there with you, Amy, at one point and kind of, again, uh, maybe not just at the end of the miniseries, uh, maybe at, you know, certain times when movies come out. It'd be a great time to talk to everybody who listens to the show and have uh, very strong opinions. 
I'm in. I mean, if, if anything, the, the last five minutes have taught me I should keep my eye on you to make sure that you're safe and alive. So yes, let's yes. be on video as much as we can. So I mean, let's get into it and let's uh, unspool it. The year is 2014. Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 vanishes somewhere in the Indian Ocean. Dozens of women come forward with rape allegations against Bill Cosby, spanning a 40-year period. Michael Brown uh, is killed by an officer just three weeks after Eric Garner is murdered by the police. Protests turn violent in Ferguson, Missouri, where the militarized police bring in tear gas and rubber bullets. A burgeoning global Ebola pandemic claims over 5,000 human lives. Seems quaint now. Headlines include stories about the Ice Bucket Challenge, the Fappening, and Apple's acquisition of Beats by Dre. This year's popular films were Interstellar, Guardians of the Galaxy, John Wick, Gone Girl, and today's film, The Babadook. Uh, let's take a listen to a scene from The Babadook. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? The Babadook. It is directed by Australian filmmaker Jennifer Kent, and it stars Essie Davis and Noah Wiseman as a single mom named Amelia and her six-year-old son, Sam. Now, the setup here is that Amelia's husband died as he was driving her to the hospital to give birth to Sam. And now, six years later, she's still really lost in grief. She's really sleep-deprived. She's still self-care deprived. When Sam starts building weapons and promising to protect her from a monster called the Babadook. And the Babadook likes to knock loudly on walls and slip the family a book about how he's going to come in and Amelia is going to kill everyone, even the dog. The Babadook is a movie about loss and it's a movie about grief. And it's a movie about you know, the all-consuming emotions of parenthood, you know, the good and the painful. And the Babadook premiered at Sundance, but it didn't hit theaters until May 22nd, 2014. And when we take that and rewind it back, the number one song on the Billboard charts that weekend is by one of our most treasured artists and treasured parents. The song is All of Me, and it is a love song that John Legend wrote for his wife, Chrissy Teigen. So let's just take a second and send them both some love right now. Give your all to me, I give my all to you, you're my end and my beginning, even that song it's a that's a really pretty song i remember uh feeling very connected to everyone i love when i heard that song oh that's lovely well you know i i hope i hope uh you just start singing it everywhere you go paul well you know for such an upbeat song this movie is really um like you said a movie about grief and i love this film and on this watch I saw the themes so much more clearly than I did the first time, because I think like all great horror films, it can work on two levels. And we talked about this in The Shining back in the day, this idea of you can just watch it as, ooh, it's scary and creepy and it's about possession and this creepy monster, but it's doing so much more underneath the surface. And I think this movie right from the get go is so beautifully elegant, like the way it opens, uh, where you understand exactly where this character is of the mother, you see the car crash, it gives you so much information wordlessly, and it's so 
beautiful. I, I mean, I just want to take a moment to talk about that opening sequence. Yeah, I actually want to play the audio of that because, you know, not only are we getting these amazing dreamlike surrealistic surrounded in black visuals of, of the mother herself, of, of S.D. Davis as Amelia, even the sound is letting us know from the beginning, this is a mother who's really disengaged and she's disengaged from her son. You know, the way that you hear auditorily how we can't even get through to her. You know, talking about sound design, it was another thing that I noticed in this film. There's a section in the film kind of later in the movie where the mom is hiding away from her son and it sounds like he's underwater. And that mm-hmm. idea and this the way that you can kind of get into a character's headspace through sound design is so prevalent in horror. We talked last week about how Frankenstein in this, you know, first horror movie really was innovative in the way that they use sound. And, and again, put you inside the coffin, did those... Uh, you know, things with thunder to make it sound more intimidating and and bold. So I love how from the beginning to now, it's continually evolving and, and making it, I mean, I think one of the tenets of a great horror film. I love that you just brought up that parallel because, you know, I hadn't really even thought about this. First, I wanted to say like my, my background with The Babadook, you know, I saw this film when it premiered at Sundance. And there's kind of this thing that happens every Sundance when like an indie horror film comes out and everybody I know at Sundance, especially because I like hanging out with like the creepies who love the midnight movies at Sundance, go nuts. They're like, it's the scariest thing I've ever seen. Oh my God, you have to see it. That happened with The Witch, that happened with Hereditary, and that happened with The Babadook. And every time I go and everybody's built it up so much at Sundance that I'm like, it's okay. It's fine. Like I was very underwhelmed with all three of those films the first time I watched them. So to go back and rewatch The Babadook again was great. I really I really needed that. I needed a second round with the Baba Duck Duck Duck. Yeah. But as I was, you know, reading into it, I hadn't realized this, but Jennifer Kent herself, the director, talked a lot in the press at the time about how influenced she was by films like Frankenstein from the Frankenstein era. She said that when she was coming together with the look of the film and the style, she was looking at German expressionism, which was a major touchstone for the Frankenstein film. You know, the kind of like exaggerated shadows, the crooked banisters, the tactile feel of early horror films. Well, you can definitely see that in the film. Like one of those nights where she's up late watching TV, she's watching these, you know, I felt like they were German expressionism films. It felt to me like I was watching a Murnau film in what she was watching. Yeah, I mean, there is that feeling. Like these are a little bit earlier. She's making nods to Méliès, who's one of my absolute favorite oh, directors. Right, yes. And you, we've talked about Méliès, you and I, when we were talking about magic in films, because Méliès came out of a theatrical magic background. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that she's touching out to filmmakers as magicians, having a son play a character who wants to be a magician in this film, you know, having posters of Thurston, um, the famous magician in the background. There's this old-fashioned streak to it that I don't think I had completely appreciated the first time I watched it. I mean, she said that, you know, she really loves early horror because she found it really artful, creepy, and moving and moving as works of art. And I was thinking, gosh, I mean, even the film itself, The Babadook, is so desaturated. At parts, it, it even looks a little bit black and white. Hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think what I love about this film, and there are many parts to it, but it is a throwback in the sense that everything that you see on camera was done in camera. There's no CGI. You know, everything was done with practical effects. And I'm a big believer that that makes horror that much more um, visceral, right? Because it seems like it is actually happening or there is something about, you know, seeing a shadow evolve into something else that doesn't look like it's been computer generated that makes me a little bit more afraid or unnerved. I feel the same way. I mean, when I think about what really freaks me out in horror films, it's almost always something that feels tangible, either, mm. you know, physically tangible, the way the Babadook looks here, the, the way that book looks when the book shows up and it's all torn and ripped together and like glued yeah. back. That's scarier to me than seeing like 90 animated lizards. I'm like, whatever. Oh, like a yeah. lizard with a mouth and a mouth and a mouth. Like, I don't care. Give but me a couple real like cockroaches. Yeah. Just, I just need to see yeah. like 10 cockroaches. And it's way more effective than a floor full of. <laughs> no, you're right. Like, I actually just had to watch this Clive Barker movie, like, or an adaptation of Clive Barker's Books of Blood this uh, uh-huh. last week, which blarg. But like in that movie, somebody throws up a f- volcano of cockroaches and it's like, yo, Ugh. just give me one. Just give yeah. me like six little legs and two antenna and I will lose my mind. Like if you're going to show Cage me a and Vampire's Kiss. Cock- yeah, exactly. That's why I think one of the scariest movies is still arachnophobia. Like one little oh, spider yeah. that you know is in your house. Terrifying. No, that movie needs uh, a bit of a rewatch because... I remember that being incredibly uh, frightening to me as a child. That was more terrifying than Jaws to me in many ways. And also just to tie all of this together, I mean, didn't you think the Babadook, speaking of great sound design, that the monster itself kind of sounds like an insect? You know, when she's in bed the first time and you see him climb in, I was like, it's a it's a Baba bug. Yes. No, it, it, it felt like a swarm of roaches or yeah flies it had that sense of it like that sound effect is always so unnerving to me in a horror film when you know you're opening a box maybe there's a head in there and you hear that like there's just a (laughs) you know there's just something about the swishy swirmy buzzing i don't know they're great sound design and to even open up more about sound design too um you know there's a lot of sound effects from video games in this movie um, like there's a soundcraft from Warcraft two. Um, what? yeah. Oh yeah. It was, um, the effect was like a, a calling response of the dragons in this, in this game. Right. And there's also like a scream that she took from Motaro from Mortal Kombat three, which is like a 1995 what? game. Yeah. And they even took a vocal sample of the opening cinematic of the PlayStation one game, resident evil. And they put that multiple times in during the final confrontation. Yeah, a lot of these effects are lo-fi. I love it. And I don't think I realized just how low budget this film was. I didn't even realize that of the $2.5 million it cost, 30000 of it was raised via Kickstarter. Um, and of that money, almost all of it was put towards the art department. And, uh, you know, this movie is really, I don't know, like a, a labor of love in many ways. I mean, the history of this movie and what Jennifer Kent did to push it into fruition, I mean, it goes back almost a decade. You know, she first started to think about this story in the early 2000s. 
you know, she had a friend who was a mom and she said that um, one of her mom, one of her mom friends, uh, Jennifer Kent, by the way, is not a mom herself, but one of her friends had a kid who was being stalked by a monster. And so the mom decided that the way she was going to deal with it was she was going to pretend to be the monster's friend to try to like triangulate the situation. Oh, I mean, that's like some mean girls kind of yeah. emotional uh, brilliance, I think. But Jennifer Kent really loved that idea. And so because she loved that idea so much. She made a short in 2005 called Monster that was a lot of this plot, you know, this plot point, like a mom sees that her kid is really afraid. The kid in that movie is more into like knights and swords and stuff. Yeah. And, and his the thing that he's really freaked out about looks, I think, a little bit more like a fraggle stuffed animal. Actually, here, we could even listen to a clip of Monster. It's just a doll. No, it isn't. It's real. That's it. I'm trying to... He says he's going to eat me up. Stop it! I watched Monster last night because it's on the uh, iTunes. If you buy it on iTunes, they have the short film. And it was really interesting to watch. I thought the mom was kind of freaked out by this stuffed doll. And she originally throws it into the closet after the, the, the child is playing with it, you know, and, and stabbing it. And then it comes to life. In many respects, the short, it's 10 minutes. So obviously it's not as complex. But it is... Uh, a much simpler idea, like this creature coming to life, you know, or this doll coming to life. Uh, it doesn't have any of the weight that this film has, which I think makes this film transcend, you know, for lack of a better example, like Chucky, child's play. <laughs> there will be no hate of Chucky on this No, podcast, I love Chucky. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even in that short, though, you see that the weight of dealing with the monster is on the mom. You know, the mom has to kind of mom it into behaving and then she feeds it milk, which is a little less scary than uh, bugs. Although I would say, you know, old milk is scary. But yeah, I appreciate just even the basic setup of this because I think we see a lot of horror films where it's like, I'm a little child and there's a scary monster. And either it's like fully onto the child just being freaked out all the time and tiptoeing around or the child just being can I be honest, like kind of a naive dummy, like, oh, this creepy ghoul is my best friend. And the parents are like, oh, that's interesting. He has a new best friend. He's like, yeah, it's a creepy ghoul. I love him. And you're like, kid, yeah. get it together. Creepy ghouls are not your friends. But here she really does shift the weight over to the mom. And the kid does something I find more interesting, which is the kid is neither like terrified of the Babadook completely, like, oh, I'm just a quivering thing. Protect me. Or a dummy. The kid is like, I'm going to protect my mom. Like the kid be- tries to frame himself as the hero in this. I mean, in a lot of ways. This movie is sort of home alone with monsters, the kid Mm. creating traps and being like, I'm going to battle you. I'm creating dart guns. I'm creating catapults. Well, I would argue that the the child storyline is the B story of this film. And and to go back to the short film for a second, one of the things that she did take uh, was this idea of the mother protecting her son by being bigger and louder. If a car was to roll over her son, she could pick it up over her head because mothers have this unnatural strength whenever their child is in danger. And that, and the end of that short definitely embraces that idea. Like she faces this demon and is not afraid and she's not afraid because she's protecting her son. And that's how the film itself ends. And the film really is tracking the mom's journey. And I think what you just described, the the kid's journey, that's almost a different movie because I'm watching this very much from the mom's perspective. And what they do in this film, 
they're dealing with three things really, really effectively. And each of those things is so incredibly exhausting. And I'll just go through it and I'd love to hear what you think. First of all, lack of sleep. Any parent that has a child that is probably under 10 understands this idea of being completely sleep deprived and how that makes you feel. And I love the way they they convey sleep in this film. Like, you know, you see it happen under the covers. It's moving too quickly. It's like the only time in her day that is moving fast. And and. Yeah. And I know as a Jennifer Kent gets that all across just by changing the light. Like she oh. lays down, the light changes and she's awake again. Yes. It, it there are so many things about sleep and sleep deprivation that I oh, I I as a parent and as a parent in pandemic, there are these things that I'm just like, oh, I feel this so cleanly and clearly. I talked about it earlier about the sound design of hearing the kid as if he's underwater when he's by her bed, just wanting her to get up. Uh I recognize and I appreciate that. And that's such a battle of being a parent. Like you have to always be present. You can't sleep in. You can't take a day off. And then you just talk about being a parent, right? And and what it is to be not only a parent, but a single parent. And I think when this movie starts, this kid's a dick. I don't like this kid. I actually grow to like this kid as the film goes on. But he is unnerving to me. Like the 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 tone of his voice, the way that he screams, the way that he cries, the way he enters into scenes. You are fully in this woman's body and you are like, I'm tensing up for him. I go, shut up, just shut the fuck up. And it's like, because it's so at a fever pitch. And I think it's something that people don't talk about that much about being a parent. Like last night when I watched this movie, I think I identified it with it greatly because I had a day where it also was coming off of my kids just being like, I love my kids. They're the best thing in my life. They've made me a better person. But yesterday they were annoying the shit out of me. And it was like, I, it took me forever to get them to bed. And then I got them to bed and it took me like another hour to, get to keep them in bed. And I was like, oh. And when I watched this movie, everything that I was feeling was articulated in this moment. And I think, you know, it's such a, a hard thing to convey on film because you don't want her to be unlikable. But yet you see her just overwhelmed by the emotions and dealing with this kid because the kid's not even i mean is he off is he not like in her mind it's just disrupting her equilibrium right like that's like yeah i mean how did you feel about him when you first met him well yeah i mean that kid has this crazy kind of cockeyed look right he's sort of claus kinski or he honestly reminded me a bit of malcolm mcdowell in yes um, yeah there's a malcolm mcdowellness energy to him where you're like that kid is a droog like that he, kid could do anything he's kind of like part droog and part the omen kid right like he has that kind of look i was like i kept on thinking of him like as a young angus young from acdc i don't know why that image just kept on popping in my head but he had like a similar i guess maybe it's a schoolboy outfit yeah and, and by the way i mean the actor here noah wiseman like he was discovered um to do this film during his very first weekend ever at acting class like he was wow. brand new his mom was a psychologist he had just started going to an acting class and she just, boom, she'd seen a bunch of kids. And when she saw Noah, she was like, this kid is special. We were very, very delicate with Noah. Um, the most beautiful child, really innocent and in his own world um, and very happy to make, make believe. And Jen said that his audition was, she was like, okay, you've got you've to gotta sneak into this place. And, and she said he was the only key who went and, he was the only kid who went and found a key 
an imaginary key and unlocked a door and locked it behind him. And so he was very available to go into a place of play and make believe. And what I really appreciate too, just by the way, with Jennifer Kent is she didn't subject this kid to all the darkness. She wanted to protect him and not destroy his childhood. So she shot it in ways where he wasn't on set for all the awfulness uh, that the mom does. And when you got these reactions of him being upset, it was basically the director or the actress uh, off camera going, I'm taking away all your Legos. You know, so it was it was still uh, tension filled, but less uh, like <laughs> that the kid would go home and have nightmares. So I, I do appreciate that. I think that's responsible <laughs> directing of children. It's true. Although I feel bad for the adult that they had stand in as as the child. They made this adult be on his knees. And then S.E. Davis would just yell at this man on his knees. So that's a, that's a really hard day. That's a really hard day. But yeah, I think apparently she just told, um, I think apparently Jennifer Kent just told Noah that this was a film about the power of love, which I can, oh, which is really true. And I think true. that's a sweet way of playing his whole part. Like, I'm going to protect my mother with yes. love. But I want to He's in a different movie. Like, yeah, he is in a different movie. As as a parent, parenting in pandemic, I mean, the way that she shoots the fact that the kid is always touching her, I think in a time mm. of me feeling claustrophobic anyways, I could imagine how claustrophobic that is. Like the, the shots she gets that really capture how how intertwined these two people are, you know, like him touching her here, him grabbing her there, like their feet, the way she she, she shows their bodies in these up close, quick, quick, quick cuts at the beginning. Yes. And even not having kids, I was like, nobody get near me right now. She makes you feel so physically sweaty and claustrophobic. something that I thought, again, she captured that's so incredibly unique. First of all, and I haven't gotten to my third point that of something that I think that she pulls in here, but the idea that, you know, the touch of a child is one of the best things, to hug them, kiss them, but when you are not feeling it or when you are sleeping with them, uh, and I think her reasoning for this touch is different, but I will say, like last night, I was asleep, when my kids got into my bed um, and I was, I looked at him and I was so happy he was there for a second, even though I don't love them in our bed. Uh, but I was looked at him and I went back to sleep. And then about an hour later, I woke up because he just slammed his head into mine. And I'm like, oh, like I just literally like head bopped me. And there are these moments where like, like I was trying to go do something yesterday in the house and just literally tugging at me and touching me and like, like enough, 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 because they don't know those boundaries. Every touch is good, right? You know, as long as they're not hurting you. And I think she captured that idea of sleeping with a child really wonderfully. But I think what she's really trying to do is show this other thing that I want to talk about, which is a grief. And she hasn't been touched by anybody else. So it's also this other thing of, Who's touching her? 
she, you know, her husband is dead and her child is touching her and, but they're in bed. So this feeling that she used to have in bed, it doesn't feel the right way anymore. Like it's wrestling with that. So yes, you have that thing of, of a parent, like, oh yes, just give me my space. Give me a moment. Give me a second to decompress. I don't want to sound like a terrible parent. I'm saying these are moments that you have in in the life of a parent, in the lifespan of a parent. I've had these um, I mean, moments. I'm willing um, to bet any parent listening to this is nodding with you right now. Yeah. I, like, and, and then I think she's adding on to that. And that's why I think this movie is so fucking effective. The idea of grief and this grief, it's like, it's grief. It's being a single parent. It's, there's so many things at play here. And she can't even really understand what it is. And I think as you get to the end of the movie, you see them literally touching each other and being together, right? Because they not only have gone through this thing, but, you know, I think the whole idea of the film is you can't hide grief, right? You can't keep grief at bay. You need to experience it. You need to name it. And you need to embrace how it has painted you. And I feel like what this mom does in the beginning is the house is very closed off. We don't talk about what happened. We really only learn what happened verbally at the very end of the film when the two teachers are there and they explain, oh, it happened while she was pregnant. It happened on, you know, the day he was born. And this has been going on. Like they name it. And as they name it, the house is brighter. They go outside. It looks like a whole different lighting. You know, it's like, but she can't even have a relationship with him until she names her grief. And it's so interesting how, you know, I think that you try to keep things from your child. Like, oh, I don't want to bring them down that path. I don't want to open myself to them. But she finds that as she opens herself, she can actually allow him in. And I think that that's the transition that we see of the kid. That kid becomes way less annoying at the end because she's actually opened herself to him and his touch and his presence. And I, I believe that the way that we see him in the beginning is through her eyes. And then at the way he is at the end is more her, uh, the way he actually is. Does that make sense? I know it's a lot, but. Yeah, her her loneliness for adult companionship, I think, really pops out. And I like how Jennifer Kent layers that in really early. You know, before we even have like the total nightmare of the Baba Dick showing up, when you have those scenes of just her alone watching TV and everything on TV, you know, early on is something reminding her that she's alone, you know? Doctor ordered. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's I've been doctor And then, I mean, the dark, horrible joke that even when she's like, I'm going to take a couple minutes to myself, I'm going to treat myself like an adult, and she takes her vibrator and she goes up to her bedroom, yeah. that the kid bursts in right there, too. Yeah. I mean, it's really, you're, you feel her desperation to just have a little bit of I'm an actual grown-up adult with grown-up needs. Like you you sense a mother just giving everything to the child in her life and feeling like she has nothing left. Like absolutely nothing belongs to her. God bless single parents. Honestly, like I, I think of that often. Like it's so hard to be a parent and it's so extremely hard to be a single parent. I, I, you know, my mom was divorced for periods of time 
as I was growing up, uh, my dad was in my life a lot, but you know, I spent, there's a period of time where I was spending a lot of time with one parent or the other. And, and now as a parent, I realize the relief that you get, even if you are in the moment, not getting along with your partner, but the relief that you get that you can kind of, I got to check out, I got to take a time out and she doesn't have it. And, and so we're dealing with all that pressure and then the grief, like, I mean, this Babadook is, I mean, I think the Babadook is grief. I think the Babadook, I mean, I'm sure I'm not saying anything bizarre. That's probably what most people think, but it's like this idea of, 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 um, of this monster that is literally going to kill you, your relationship with your son. It is going to destroy everything if it's not named, acknowledged, and she doesn't want to acknowledge it. She doesn't want to name it. She doesn't want to do it. And she's running from it. I mean, it's so, so powerful to me. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we talk about like exorcism and possession movies as demons coming in, but the idea that grief is this demon who's knocking at her door, who, if he does take care of, take, take control of her entire body, she will do things that, you know, you can be pushed to a state of, loneliness of despair. I mean, what we see happen to her character throughout this movie, you know, she's been not great for six years, but she's been alive. Her kid is still alive. The dog is still alive. And then to see her go through another thing that feels so relatable, her kid can't go to school anymore. So her kid has to be home with her, her sister, her, her one support network that she has outside of, of her husband who died is now shunning her and saying like, my daughter doesn't want you around. We don't want him coming to the party. You're weird judging her as a mother. Um, the neighbor who I think has been really kind and as much as she can be, she's still just a neighbor at the end of the day. Even though I respect that, like one of the bright things that Sam right. tries to do and his mom goes crazy is he's like, tries to call her. He's like, I just need some sort of adult help that the mother isn't getting. The mother's just becoming increasingly, increasingly alone. Even when she goes to the doctor, and she tries to really clearly just say what she needs. You know, she needs to sleep. You can hear in this clip, like, the judgment she's receiving. And just her complete isolation is is wrenching. He's obviously suffering a high level of anxiety. Very committed to the monster theory. That's an understatement. All children see monsters. Not like this. And it's getting worse. He's becoming aggressive. You could see a psychiatrist. I can refer you. Takes a few weeks to get in. That'd be great. But can you just give me something for now, just to make him sleep? And just until... Just until we get an appointment. Please. I haven't slept in weeks and... And neither has Samuel. And when we go home tonight, this whole nightmare will start up again. And I am really, I'm really not coping. So, yeah, the idea that a creepy book shows up right at this moment when she is most raw and vulnerable and and without any sort of support network. And that this creepy book could basically turn her into the kind of monster that she sees on the news. Police say the woman used a kitchen knife to stab her son. His body was found in their basement. The woman later attacked officers with the knife. They drew their guns and shot her to death. Little is known about the tragedy, but neighbors say the boy was celebrating his birthday today. He had just turned seven. 
know, by the way, for like Jennifer Kent, she said when she was writing this movie that there was a case in Australia where a man was stuck on traffic on a high bridge. And something about being stuck on traffic on this bridge with his five-year-old daughter, he just ended up snapping and he got out of the car, he grabbed his daughter and he threw her off the bridge and she died. And Jennifer Kent said, you know, this story was all over the, the Australian news. But something in her said, gosh, she really needed to know what pushed that man to this point because he was human. And so what made him a monster in that moment? Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. You know, I want to talk about one other thing that you mentioned in that section, which was, yes, her sister is kind of abandoning her, her, her doctor is judging her, but also her job right? Her job is to take care of people who are essentially at the same stage of life that her son is, right? They need a protector. They need someone to give them food. They need someone to literally take care of every need, like a senior citizen. You know, you come into this world as a child, and I think you leave this world as a child if you're lucky enough to live a long enough life. And the fact that her bookends of her day are just you know, like that's why that one shot of her just eating an ice cream cone is so like it's a moment like she's just she's needs to be taken care of. She needs something. Right. You know, she's isolated in every way at that birthday party, the way they shoot it, like those the all the mothers that look alike on the one side of the table and they're on the other side of the table. I'm, by the way, blown away. This movie has not been remade. I, I feel like let the right one in like they remade it Im- immediately as an American film like. Like, I don't think you need to, but it's such, it's so ripe just to be like, okay, we'll just do this in Scottsdale, Arizona. But um, it's true. By the way, I think the American remake of that movie is better than the Swedish one. And I will stand by that until the day I die. Oh, interesting. Um, I think I'll fight you on that one. But uh, <laughs> I don't have enough at my disposal right now. But I will say, I think the thing that um, American films don't do as well, and probably the reason why this movie hasn't been done is because I don't think we examine our grief that much. I don't think that we really embrace it. I think one of the beautiful things of I May Destroy that Michaela Cole show that was on HBO, was dealing with grief and the effects of trauma. And obviously that's much more in a sexual nature, but it's the same idea. Like we don't sit with it. It's how uncomfortable that is and how lonely it is because I often think, and I know that you and I have both been through you know, obviously dark times. We all have been. Everyone mm-hmm. listening to the show has been through. But there is that point. Um, I think especially when you lose a parent, and I have not lost a parent, but I've been with someone who lost a parent, where people stop asking you, how are you, right? Mm-hmm. And it's as if, oh, it's over. You, you know, we gave you your, you know, month or two months or whatever, your, whatever has been society's dictates as the time to ask. And now we just assume everything is fine. And that to me is always an incredibly isolating time. Like I remember how much June appreciated people saying to her, like, how are you doing? Like, you know, it's, yes, it's four months later, but how, how are you? Like, you know, and 
because grief doesn't go away. It's not like you can get through grief. You manage grief, right? And 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 I I love that idea too. Like she literally is isolated because no one's even trying to reach out to her. No one's even acknowledging, oh, you may be feeling this. It's like, no, no, you're a mom. We're going on. Everything's normal. Everything's great. Not seeing her for what she's dealing with. Yeah, no, that's 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 incredibly true. I mean, I lost my dad my senior year of college. And so I, I think especially if people out there have lost a parent younger than most people in your age group, lose them. People your age don't even know how to ask you how you're doing. They, no. they don't. They are like, maybe she just doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. So it's a really alone time. And I remember realizing from that point on, um, when my friends unfortunately lost parents, I felt like, okay, I know how to be the well, like the the welcoming committee to the dead parents club is kind of no. be thought. But you're like, I, you need a spirit walker who has been there. Like, okay, let's, I, let's I be have, here. We can go through this together because it's so incredibly isolating. I've seen that firsthand obviously not lived through it but lived closely through it and and that i mean this is why i want to talk about this movie nonstop because it is like what like what other film is this layered right like there's there's other great films where you're seeing people have emotional breaks i think that hereditary has interesting similarities right because it is dealing with uh grief this movie, I think, is so compact and so kind of brilliant in its simplicity, but it deals with these, you know, what it is like to be a single parent, what it is like to deal with grief, what it is like to just, uh, you know, to, to, I don't know, be alone and isolated. There's so much here, but yet it's incredibly entertaining. It doesn't leave you incredibly depressed, right? It, like there's something about it that's still thrilling and fun. And you can step back from all of this and just be like, I'm enjoying this movie. It's a great fun ride. No, it's true. And actually, you know, I'm realizing this episode is coming out the day after like my own personal holiday, which is oh. dad's day. Um, it's my oh. dad's birthday and it's also my best friend's dad's birthday. And we both lost our dads. And so, uh, Happy Dad's Day. I just Happy wanted to take Dad's a moment Day. to yeah. say that because, you know, for me, I've had to learn how to process grief by approaching it head on, by creating like mm-hmm. days and ceremonies that I still honor in honor of my dad, because that's how I had to learn I to process that. to process emotions is yeah. like, you know, not to run away from it, but by using the times and the memories that show up as as excuses to think positive things about the person who lived and to thank them for everything they've brought into the world. Um, but yeah, but yeah, yeah. So we're watching a film no, about I a mean, woman I, who's like, beautiful. Not, yeah. Who's learning how to do that, which, which you don't know, you know, you're really fumbling. Without getting onto all the details. I have a family friend who lost her two children and oh my gosh, yeah, it's really terrible. Uh, awful. I mean, it's really, I mean, those words don't even do it justice, honestly. And, and she was going back to work and reached out to June and said, look, can you let people know mm-hmm. that, yes, this is a part of me, but I also, when I'm there, when I'm on set, I might talk about my children and, and it's okay. Like, I want you to engage me in this. I want you to be, because it's part of my 
you know, grieving doesn't mean that you put it in a box and you put it away. It, it, it is a part of your life and it's there. And it's not talking about that day, but it's talking about the general sense. It's like these people live and we have to celebrate the people that we've lost. And we have to do that through the way that we speak about them, the way that we remember them, the way that we celebrate their days and, and, and take a moment even of reflection on special days. And that's what I really love about the end. Like, I feel like there's a relief in the end when they're sitting on that couch and just saying, yeah, my, my mom was in a car accident on the day I was born. And this is, you know, and we never celebrated my, like they're opening up themselves and you can see other people are uncomfortable, but it's like, but everything around them is light. It's like, it's, it's a, a, I don't know. I think it's a hard thing to understand, but I think people who grieve, there's a freedom and, and, and saying, no, I, I, this is who I am. This is where I'm at. Like, and so people, so many people are afraid of that. No, you're right. That puts such a lovely spin on the fact that this kid cannot stop himself from saying whatever the absolute truth is, that this is right. a kid who always says the truth. Because you're right, like, you're thinking about your friend, thinking about my own experience, you know, thinking about what other people have talked about about theirs. When you're not allowed to mention your grief around people because it makes them uncomfortable, that's a second death, you know? Yeah. Because then you're you're double alone. And so I you know, as, as annoying as I think this kid can be on purpose at the beginning of this film, that he is the one who's always willing to open his mouth and say, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. My mother's also drugging me. Can we talk about this? Right. You know? Yeah. He, yeah. he doesn't know anything better. He doesn't know what the society's norms are, right? Which is like, we don't talk about this. Or, and, and I think, you know, he's also, I look at it and I go, he's annoying. I mean, and that's, you know, I'm using that in a harsh way, but but he is annoying because he is using his voice. He's loud, whether it's crying, whether, you know, like when she reads in the book, he's wailing when he pushes the girl, like he's literally uh, calling out for help. And then he is um, figuratively calling out for help by getting into these situations that forces his mom into, all right, now you have to be with me. Now you have to travel with me. Now you can't have your babysitter. Now you have to do like, it's like, like he is, pushing through this this wall that she's created which i think is functional but not um not uh something that can last right it it will break down she will break down she will go insane she will lose him and i think that that movie is about you know her grip on reality is she losing herself she is playing it as a mom and as a fucking horror monster at the same time like you see both things fighting it's like and I and that performance from her is unbelievable because I'm like, oh, I see the mom here. And I also see, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm even taking the Babadook out of it because I'm like, fuck the Babadook, the grief monster. I mean, it is like, it's like they're they're the same. And, I, and that's what I love about the end is like she needs to go down and have her moment with grief. She know, lets him know that she's doing it, but like she's also having these moments, like she's dealing with her grief. It's a beautiful, I mean, I, I don't, yeah. No, it's true. I mean, Essie Davis, like, Jennifer Kent had known her for a really long time. I mean, Jennifer Kent, her arc was that she had wanted to be an actress herself. So she met um, Essie when they were both studying acting at the National Institute of Dramatic Art in Sydney. And so I like that she she knew her, you know, yeah, she knew who right. this woman was and she knew what she could bring out of her. And, you know, she said that one of the problems that she had in her early drafts of the script was that the character of Amelia, she thought was too good. She was just this like good mother. In that mm. she kept trying to mess up the Amelia character more and more, like trying to make her lie more. She didn't want her to be 
so likable that she said, you know, one of the things you can really do in the horror genre is you can create flawed characters. And so trying to mess her up, I mean, even just the visual, when I think about that character, I think about the fact that like she has this kind of wild curly hair that's unhinged. You know, it, she doesn't yeah. really look manicured oh. that much, except for when she kind of toggles back at the end and, oh, her hair's magically curled and now she's fine. But letting her be, you know, such like a, a pale, drawn mess, letting her go to dark places in the way that she screams at her son in that one scene. Oh, we have to listen to that. You little pig. Six years old and you're still wetting yourself. You don't know how many times I wished it was you, not him, that died. I just want you to be happy. I just want you to be happy. Sometimes I just want to smash your head against a brick wall until your fucking brains pop out. You're not my mother. The epic nature of that performance in that moment, you know, contrasted with how small and wan she can seem at times, the range that she shows oh. of of large to small, of like pushed to near invisibility, and then kind of enjoying the power of rage. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's an operatic performance. And also, I just have to say about that that, that scream, that yell that she's doing right there about oh. how horrible she's getting. It is kind of wonderful to watch this sort of horror film where people are scared of your protagonist. You know, it's not your protagonist tiptoeing around, but to watch yeah. the other people lean back. Like you've been with this character and now this character is terrifying people. Yes. That's a really good emotional turn. Well, again, going to the point that the boy is the B plot, right? Like in an, in an American horror film, and maybe I'm making a generalization in a normal horror uh, film, make it general, uh, all right. general. Yeah. Me. Yes. Uh, the, the, you would be seeing this through the boy's eyes. Oh my mm -hmm. gosh. My mom is so scared. We are watching it through her eyes. I would say primarily, you know, we are, so it is so well done. And I wanted to play this clip of Jennifer Kent talking about not playing into the horror tropes. It is a horror film, absolutely. But I feel like this is a horror film like The Shining is. It is more about an internal breakdown. And I think The Shining, um, Kubrick tapped into this as well. I, I can't speak to the book because I didn't read the book. But there is something um, about isolation and um, and provide, like, you know, it's, again, a father dealing with these issues. And I feel like the way Kubrick made that film I don't think it's as adept as this film. Uh, so I'll go out in there and say that. I mean, visually, it's very different, but it, uh, but it is, it's a horror film on that level, right? So listen to this is Jennifer Kent talking about how she didn't play into horror tropes. I love horror. I've loved horror since I was a kid. So I know all those tropes very well, but I certainly didn't feel reined in by them. I didn't feel like I had to be a good horror filmmaker and make a film that horror fans would like. You know, in, with all due respect to them, I really didn't care. I just needed to tell this story in the best way possible. Um, so, yeah, maybe that's what makes it a little bit different to some of the other horror out there. Which I love. I love not making a genre film. You can use the elements of a genre without having to be like, did I check this box and that box and this box? Uh, really, it's really cool. true. And yet it, this movie also gets the blessing of William Friedkin, you know, the director yes. of The or Exorcist, who says, who told people, I have never seen a more terrifying film. And he said he was terrified of it, even though he only watched The Babadook on his iPad with headphones. You uh -huh. know, he, he even tweeted out this line. He said, Psycho, Alien, Diabolique, and now The Babadook. 
I mean, I love that. And, and by the way, uh, Stephen King, the same way, said, I mean, Stephen King's reviews you take a little bit more with a grain uh, of salt. He loves but everything. He loves everything. But he says, deeply disturbing and highly recommend. Um, but let's. I appreciate the, the, that about Stephen King, though, that he's like, I want to take care of the younger filmmakers. I anoint you. I anoint you. Yes. I anoint you. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro... Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. We've talked a lot about thematically what's going on. I think we'd be doing the film a great disservice if we don't talk about the Babadook as a creature. Um, it beautifully designed. Um, and, you know, in very much the Jaws sense of the creature design, we see glimpses, we, we see it through the book. The book is unreal. And like I said, I have this, this remake of the book, and it really is incredibly unique and, and, and gorgeous. Um, but I want to just talk about this, this horror creature. I mean, this is our Jaws, and this is our everything, and, and it is well done. So I don't want to diminish that at all. And that's why I think this movie works really well just being like, oh, here's this crazy guy in a top hat and we're going to watch this insane mom is going to get possessed. Like, I like that it can still have this character that people dress up as as Halloween. Like, it's like, oh, I yes, the, the entry point to this film is still right in front. I will confess, I don't find the look of the Babadook himself that scary. Okay. You know? He does just sort of look like a goofy guy in a top hat to me. But I find the book really scary. You know, I yes. find the, the, the scratchiness of the illustrations and the creepy crawly rhymes of it, of it terrifying. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. If you're a really clever one and you know what it is to see, then you can make friends with a special one, a friend of you and me. <laughs> His name is Mr. Babadook, and this is his book. A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. ba 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 duk 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 That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. The tactility of the pop-up and when he waves behind the door. Oh. So small and so creepy. I love all that. And, and you know, the kid, he, the kid kind of looks a bit like the Babadook, right? They don't yeah. they have the same mouth with just yeah, they so like, many teeth. Well, it's interesting. The Babadook is like, is sexless in a way. Like, it's neither male or female to me. I mean, I guess. Really? Well, don't I don't know. He's just like makeup y Abraham Lincoln? I think the top hat probably. Uh, Goth Abraham Lincoln? I you know I think God, I think the the top hat and the way the Babadook is dressed might you know genderize the Babadook, but at the same time, I guess it could be like Marlena Dietrich. It feels more fluid than that. I don't know why. I like, or at least that's my taking. And I mean, I know 
and I'd love to get into this in a, in a second. Uh, you know, this this movie has been kind of uh, embraced by the LGBTQI community in a major way. I want to talk about that, but I, that's at least my reading of it. And I, and I felt that before I knew that this character became a gay icon. <laughs> well, I mean, there is something goofy about it, right? I mean, Baba Duke as a name, I yeah. don't find that scary. In fact, I almost think that that's part of its evil charm is it's like, I'm yeah. going to be called the Baba Duke. So if she tries to talk to anybody about me. She's going to sound even crazier because it's just such a dumb name. By the way, Baba Duke, an anagram of a bad book. Ah, okay. Because the theory I heard was that Baba Duke was inspired by um, Baba Roga, the Serbian word for boogeyman. Which, oh, by the interesting. way, I, I don't know if I pronounced that right. Let's let's go to the um, freetranslation.com pronunciation. Baba Roga. Babaroga. Babaroga. I mean, I mean, look, it, like that's the other thing. Like this, I love the Babadook name. There is something so uh, it feels foreign, and it feels magical and mystical and Fengali. Like I don't know that name is. You know, it, there's something about it. It it looks like a Babadook. Like if you uh, showed that to me, I would say, yeah, Babadook. It works for that thing. Like the way it, <laughs> the fingers and the way it it stands, uh, are really really great. Yeah, I mean, there are. I was watching this. There are like ninety million Babadook makeup t- t- tutorials online. Some oh of them are gosh. really good. So if you just want to learn how to be a Babadook yourself for uh, Halloween, just to scare yourself, just to be like the living embodiment of what is it, the Kitty Dippled tweet, where she's like, "I'm yes. just here in this living room drinking wine, being the Babadook." That's so easy to do. I mean, you could really make yourself a Babadook easy easily. But yeah. I think it starts about two years after the Babadook comes out that people start being like, is the Babadook an LGBTQ icon? You know, the New Yorker had a really funny piece where they pointed out that the things the Babadook says, like, I'll make you a bet, the more you deny, the stronger I get, just sound right. like Lady Gaga lyrics. Hmm. That's really <laughs> funny. I mean, I, I always thought that the idea, the whole reason why it even got into the conversation was because Netflix mislabeled it. Did you know that? Yes. And I wasn't sure. Yeah. Well, like <laughs> they, Netflix put it under their, like put it under uh, their LGBT movies. Like, so I think people are like, maybe people just watch it like, oh, I wonder. Okay. And it it kind of outside of itself <laughs> got inserted <laughs> in. Like, it's like, oh, imagine if like Joe Dirt, that David Spade movie got put in LGBT. Like all of a sudden be like, oh, now we're dressed up as Joe Dirt. But it, I wonder if, like, the idea of by putting it there, then you're able to kind of put some meaning to it that may not have been there. Because we just talked a lot about what I think it does represent. But I love that people found a fully new uh, voice to it. Like you said, like the Lady Gaga lyrics. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a journalist, uh, John Paul Brammer. He said that haunting a small white family in an Australian suburb is a radical act. And the Babadook did that. Well, yeah. I mean, even the Babadook himself says he's an LGBTQ uh, icon. This is the Babadook at the premiere of Drag Race. Uh, from the movie, right? Yes. Yes, and why you become a, uh, a gay icon in a sense? Yes, I, I came out not too long ago. Oh, did you? I, I did. Now, you weren't so nice in the movie. Well, no. <laughs> That's because I didn't come out yet. I was very, I was in a di- very dark place. Okay, yes. So are you, you're a changed Babadook now. Yes, I'm very happy with my life. I'm, I'm openly out, and I'm here at the Drag Race finale. All right. Well, so yes. this is your first Pride then. It is basically yes. Oh, well, congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm having such a great time. All right. Well. 
And there was this Canadian broadcast, the weekend of Pride in Toronto, that was all about trying to understand the Babadook power. The Babadook has become the unofficial 2017 icon for Pride Month, and fans are loving it. When Pride Month started, and I think we mm-hmm. first saw it in the States with the Babadook popping up at different festivals south of the border. So we definitely, I think, can expect some representation at Canadian Prides uh, this weekend and, and, and going into the summer. So how did everyone become Babahooked? I think the Babadook felt isolated and alone. And I think sometimes in the LGBTQ plus community, um, folks feel isolated and they feel different and they feel othered. I think the Babadook really represents being different. And I think the, the representation of being treated different is something that people have caught on to. With the voice that the Babadook has, the way that it presents itself, has really caught on with people of celebrating that difference. The community has grabbed onto this concept because they want to celebrate the identity, celebrate the fact that they feel different and othered. Um, and the Babadook gives you that. It gives you that ability to celebrate you as an individual and a unique person. So don't be Baba Shook if you see the Baba Duke at a pride parade near you. All right, enough with those puns. Um, <laughs> I, I will Never say that, enough puns. I will say that, you know, it's interesting because a lot of that interpretation is the Baba Duke needs to be let in. And and in many respects, here, let me just be devil's advocate. Because I will say that I see it differently in the sense that <laughs> the mom puts the Babadook back in the basement to control it. It's like, you can't live in the world. You must live here. You are going to be chained here. You can be alive here, and I will deal with you, but I'll deal with you on my own terms. So I appreciate I appreciate that it is a, a gay icon. I think when you look at the film, it's a little tough for me to kind of parse out how the story of the film reflects that. But if you take the Babadook out and you say like the Babadook is a general, I love that idea. Like you have to give, and I think this is where people are responding to it. You have to give voice to marginalized people. And, and I would argue, as we talked about earlier, emotions, right? Like that's actually the thing that I like about it as far as what it says in, in, in the LGBTQI plus culture, which is like that we must give it voice. We must bring it into the daylight. And when we bring it into the daylight and we incorporate it into our life, um, we are only better for it. And that to me is awesome. Even though the movie doesn't totally reflect that pattern because he is, like I said, kept in the basement. But, uh, I will say that I love that idea that when you shine a light on something, when you, when you bring it in, you are only better for it. And I think that, uh, the more we respect and open our eyes to, different people and problems and uh, and lifestyles and beliefs, the better we are as a society. So that I'm all thumbs up on. Just have a hard time kind of parsing it out t- thematically to the film. Well, touche, but you will never get the image of the Babadook um, meeting the guys from Clear Eye for the Straight Guy oh, Jesus. on an episode of Robot Chicken out of my long black fingernailed hands. The person we're making over lives in Australia in a single mom's basement. Bob is a closeted recluse with a penchant for steampunk accoutrement who isn't sure how to present on the rural Australian dating theme. Accoutre, yes, I'm horny already. Bob, we are here to take you to the next level. Just because you're living in the basement doesn't mean you need to live in the closet. We have got to get you off the earthworm diet. And no one wants a boy without a bed frame. You can bring me the boy. Babe, you're literally going to be swimming in boys. I'm just going to give you a bit of a trim here, and you're going to feel like a brand new whatever you are. 
Duke, honey, yes. I love it. I'm into it. All right. Um, oh, it's so good. By the way, all the Babadook keeps saying over and over again is just bring me the boy. <laughs> uh, I love it. Um, I also love uh, as this film has grown in our culture and obviously in ways that Jennifer Kent probably never even imagined. She has definitively said she will never allow a sequel to be made. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I love that. And I think that that is um, the saving grace of this film, because when you have a character like this, I'm sure there are plenty of people. And maybe this is the reason why there hasn't been an American remake, because she is allowing it to be what it is, the one singular idea. Uh, And everybody else can do whatever they want with it. But I, I like that it is only the way that she wants it to be done. And that, that's that's really, uh, that's awesome. Uh, agreed. And also, Jennifer Kent has a lot more horrifying stories that she can tell. I don't know if you saw The Nightingale, um, her latest Oh, yes, film. yes, yes. That is one of the hardest watches I've ever seen. It makes the Babadook just look like, you know, watching Home Alone. To be honest, I that movie agree. is incredibly bleak. Um, one interesting trope uh, about this film that is different than others. Amy, could you guess the one thing that is different? If we decide that this is a horror film, Mm -hmm. what's one thing that this film does differently than any other, I guess, horror, or I guess I'd say it's a rare, a rarity. Do you know? Maybe I'm being too Uh, vague. It ends with a white dove. Interesting. Good guess. Um, It's one of the rare films where everybody who we meet in the beginning of the film is alive at the end of the film. Not the dog. Not but the dog. Not Come the on. dog. But but I mean, uh, but that is often a rare case in a horror film that everyone gets out alive, uh, including our our bad guy, our villain. You know, so that's, uh, oh, that's interesting. True. Even the Babadook gets to live. Yeah. So oh, I just thought that was interesting. Um, I appreciate that, that you can be horrifying without a massive body count unless you count pets. <laughs> Let me ask you. What people thought of this film, because I remember it being one of those films. uh, Wow, it's crazy. It's been six years. But when it came out, everyone I knew was saying, you got to see it. You got to see it. Passing it around, looking at it. Um, And we have seen, obviously, that it grew into our culture. Were there people out there that didn't like it? I mean, in Sundance, you were kind of lukewarm on it. I was lukewarm on it. I was lukewarm on it. But there weren't that many people who just didn't like the film. It's actually pretty hard. Uh, One of the only people I found who didn't like the film um, was a reviewer on BET.com. And this is what they said. No amount of style can redeem the ridiculous plot holes, annoying characters, exhaustive cliches, and worst of all, lack of scares. The Babadook takes itself too seriously and gets lost in its own polish. The film strives for horror than The Way of the Shining or Silence of the Lambs, but it's more like Annabelle with better cinematography, which is not a compliment. No. Considering the rave reviews, one would think The Babadook is another exorcist. Don't be fooled by the hype. Even with solid acting and a gifted director, the Australian flick is identical to any film about a creepy kid with a neurotic parent. You have yawned through all of it before. Wow. Interesting. I mean, I feel like that's a review of this movie that made all the wrong choices, right? Like, I didn't see that film here. Um, but Yeah, it's almost a review of the hype, which I can yes. relate to. It's like you're reviewing the hype of the film. This film is too hyped. I, I take it down a level. Yeah, like I never enjoyed uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon because it was so hyped to me. I was like, eh, all right. And I know I'll never look at that film in a way like, and I love movies like Hero with Jet Li where it had also similar fighting styles and, Ugh, you know, this kind of frozen. So beautiful. So beautiful. Um, if only Milan it, had been more like Hero, man. Ooh. Oh, man, Milan. Oh, man. Um, not going to be on this show. Uh, but um, 
but it you know it was really nicely priced at only thirty dollars. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, it's like it's interesting. Um, sometimes hype can wreck something. I, I totally mm-hmm. agree. Um, I think well, that's we, absolutely what happened with me in this film at Sundance. Yeah, that yeah, like there is an overhypeness that happens in the hermetic snow of Sundance which I will miss, but it is its own it, this year. It's its own little snow globe where everything gets overhyped. And it's it, as a critic, I hate that because it really is hard for me to readjust and see the film the way that it is. So I'm glad that we did this episode. Yeah, I premiered a comedy at uh, Sundance or actually a friend of mine premiered a comedy at Sundance and I went to it, a midnight screening. And the reaction inside the room, it was bad. It, was, it, it went badly. And then they brought it outside of the Sundance bubble to like a local theater with a regular audience. They do this with a lot of the films, the Sundance films, like, you know, 25 miles away. And the response was so amazingly great. Uh, And it was affirming. It's like, oh, right. Like sometimes these festivals can create something so unique that it explodes and it's not worthy of it. And sometimes it can wreck something. I remember, I believe Get Out was a, a midnight premiere at Sundance. And, you know, it's, you got to play it the right way. We talked about Blair yeah, Witch. I mean, in one. I was at that midnight premiere of Get Out at Sundance. And I will admit, oh, wow. I thought it was just meh. I thought there was no vibe for that film in the, in, in the theater at all. You know, and so, and so I've always had that little bit of a, of a, of a Right. Pal- a pallor over that film for me because I thought everybody left and we all trudged out at two in the morning. You know, you're seeing at the library, which is a kind of hard theater yes, to get to. Yeah. And you're just everybody trips on the stairs. They're really slippery and it's hard to get a shuttle home and everybody's in a bad mood. And so I was like, well, I was looking forward to that. But oh, well, <laughs> so, there it is. It's just so hard to gauge. Well, what do you think an alien would think of the Babadook? You know, I think that if this movie was blasted off into space, it would do pretty well. You know, I think that this movie has a lot of style and I think it has a lot of of kind of cruelty and empathy in the same breath. Like by cruelty, I just mean that the film screws with your loyalties as an audience member, which I really appreciate that it really you go on to different arcs with the mother and the son and you really get to feel different ways about them throughout the course of the film. I wonder if an alien might think that the ending of the film is a feint. You know, I'm not sure if I if I can buy the complete happiness of that of the ending, you know, or if it's just mm. like a temporary pause. I mean, because how does the kid turn a coin into a white dove? Is something weird happening? What's well, up with that black Baba Rose? You know, like it holds on their face at the ending just long enough that I feel nervous, and I expect the Baba Duke to be like, "Surprise! I'm pouring gotcha. tea." Um, I was like, how did the kid get away with buying that dove with the mom not knowing? But exactly. either way, I'm not going to get too much into that. I will say that if I was an alien, I'm watching this film and I realize, oh, wow, this is a good lesson for me. If I was to come to Earth, I might be rejected at first. Mm-hmm. But then um, if I just keep on showing that I'm not going anywhere, we can find a way to live together. I mean, there it's a very much, uh, you know, a foreign entity coming into a world. And, and I also think it shows, I'm a big believer in um, showing things that we often don't get to see. And I think that this film does a really great job. Um, I mean, this is why I love Noah Baumbach movies. And maybe Noah Baumbach is very specific to me. But I think that Noah Baumbach captures certain things that we don't often see captured in film. I think we see like, and I'm, I'm talking about not even the whole film, but like scenes and moments. And this film does a really great job of capturing more complexity in parenting and grief. Uh, so for that level, I think it's 
one of the more um, complex films that we have, that we've talked about. Like, you know, uh, and I think those always should be rewarded. So right now, The Babadook is, is very high up on my general list because it is a horror, but it's not really a horror, but it also is exposing us to some things that we don't talk about, you know? Um, it's not a super easy movie if you want to pick it apart, but it is an easy movie to watch uh, just as a, a horror fan, I think. And so I, I think that, you know, I think that if an alien wants to rewatch this and it's, you know, I think they're going to get uh, some bang for the buck. And now, Amy, uh, that brings us to an end of our Duck episode. And we go into uh, the next two episodes, which are two films that really... Uh, I guess hold hands or or pass each other in a dark alley at night. Um, Giving and the each first, other that knowing nod. Hey, yes, hey. and I think that this is, um, you know, probably one of the most classic horror films. We've talked about a lot about like where does horror start. I think some people say Frankenstein. Some people say like modern horror starts at Halloween. Which, by the way, if you really want to do a deep dive of Halloween, you have to listen to Amy's uh, series, her podcast series. What was that called again? Oh, it was called um, Halloween Unmasked. And, you know, Halloween is, I think, one of the contenders for our film for the fifth audience slot. But yes. if it loses, I have done eight episodes on Halloween. I know. I was thinking that you probably... It. So it does, uh, it does exist. Um, but we are talking about Night of the Living Dead, probably one of the most seminal horror films, creating this idea of what zombies are, how they have kind of gotten into our culture, how they've really made a big comeback. So take a listen to the trailer of Night of the Living Dead. Welcome to a night of total terror. (laughs) Night of the living dead, the dead who live on living flesh, the dead whose haunted souls hunt the living, the living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Uh, this movie is obviously available wherever. Uh, I don't know if I've ever watched this movie uh, completely all the way through. I've seen the remake, but I don't think I've ever seen this whole film. I'm excited. <laughs> you are in for a treat. It will uh, tickle your brains. Ooh, well, I'm excited. This is a great conversation with you, Amy. Uh, and uh, we will see you next week for Night of the Living Dead. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> Auto Trader.